the Young and Healthy Podcast. You're listening to the Cincinnati Children's Young and Healthy Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Young and Healthy Podcast. We are recording episode 11 today and we are picking up today's episode with an update related to COVID. Um, we're kind of going off of our normal plan, but things have changed with the pandemic in the last few weeks. And we wanted to take this opportunity to provide an update from two of our resident experts. So joining me today in the studio are Dr. Patty Manning, our chief of staff, and Dr. Bob Frank, who's one of his many official titles as professor of pediatrics and infectious diseases, but he's really our resident vaccine knower of all things. Um, so we are thrilled to have both of you. Thank you so much. Um, and I think let's just go ahead and get started real quick with a, give us kind of a lay of the land. What is currently happening with the pandemic? Well, I wish I had better news to share with everyone, uh, Kate, but the reality is that we're seeing a pretty uh, steep incline in the number of positive COVID cases in our region and certainly here in our hospital at Cincinnati Children's. In our region, and that includes uh, all of our adult hospital partners, I was on a call this morning and they are seeing a very steep increase in the number of patients in their hospital beds and ICU, so much so that uh, we're planning as if we did last winter when things were very bad. We're looking at forecasts of how many patients we might have in the next two weeks and if we'll be able to handle that from a bed capacity and a staffing capacity. That's what's very different from this time last year is that uh, we're all much busier in general and our staffing issues are different than they were back about a year ago or less. At Children's Hospital, we've seen easily a doubling or tripling of the number of positive inpatients with COVID. Uh, In the past several weeks, we've seen a doubling, tripling, even maybe a quadrupling of the number of children testing positive for COVID who don't make it into the hospital, but who've tested positive out in the community. And so uh, that's where we are. And it's rising quickly, much faster than it did back in the wintertime. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that to add on with um, Patty's saying, though, is that while those are very scary and um, horrible things, and hopefully they don't continue to get worse, we do have a way to make it better and that the vaccines are very effective. And so that my message I've been trying to tell everyone is that anyone that's eligible to get a vaccine, so really anyone 12 years of age and above, please go get um, your vaccine, is that people are talking about a booster and that may be kind of like the icing on the cake, but really we need to get the people get the primary vaccines. And those are still very effective, over 90% effective of keeping you out of the hospital. Um, So please go get your vaccine. And I want to come back to that um, that booster topic in just a few minutes. Um, but while while we're kind of talking about the kids and being sick, and I agree with you 100% on the vaccines, what do we do about those kiddos who aren't old enough yet? Um, the ones that are testing positive and are ending up in the hospital, um, how, how should we be thinking about protecting them right now? So the answer uh, to some degree is the same, right? We can still make sure that we're vaccinated as adults, as the caregivers in their lives, anybody surrounding that child should be vaccinated. That protects that younger child. Uh, The other interventions that we hope people are thinking very seriously about today to, to prevent this surge from going higher, to prevent more children from getting sick, 
is to do the things that we've said all along, to wear masks, even if your school doesn't require it, we really cannot emphasize enough the benefit that a mask provides, uh, that you can continue to distance, and so to really think twice about those social activities that we've gotten really, um, we've missed, and they, they came back into our lives kind of briefly, but we probably need to put pause, uh, press pause on those activities, uh, to keep up your hygiene activities with hand hygiene. All those things are still effective, even against this more transmissible variant. And the more transmissible variant being the Delta variant, yes? Yes. Um, it feels a bit like it's impacting children more so than the original did. Is that, is there any truth in that or is that just how it feels? It's kind of twofold. Um, one thing is that if you look at the people that have been vaccinated is that people 65 and above, we have a higher vaccination rate than we do in younger people. Um, so the people that are vaccinated are gonna be protected um, so that you are then gonna be looking at disease to be happening more frequently in the people that are not vaccinated. And so the people that are not vaccinated are in the younger population. So I think that's part of the issue. Um, but the other is it does look like it's easier to transmit. So to give you an idea is if you have 10 people in a room and somebody has chicken pox and all of them are susceptible to chicken pox, nine of those 10 will get chicken pox. With the COVID, it's about 50%. So it's, it's transmissible. It's pretty transmissible. It's not as high as chicken pox, but it's pretty high. And so um, that's why uh, we really need to do as, as Dr. Manning was mentioning is to try to protect people as best we can. So in that realm of protecting people as best we can, Patty, you mentioned um, kids wearing masks at school. Um, many kids in our area and around the country are back in school as of this week or a couple of weeks ago. Um, mine personally go back to their school buildings tomorrow. And our school district isn't requiring them. Um, but I know many districts in our area have um, made that decision. What's just your thinking on masks in schools? And if we happen to reach a school administrator who can maybe make a change, what would you say to that person? Well, first of all, we, we did put out a statement a few weeks ago strongly supporting uh, masking in schools universally for everyone, students, teachers, administrators, vaccinated or not, because we we saw the safety of that intervention and the benefit that it provided the entire last school year. Today, I would say even more urgently and more importantly that if your school district has not made the decision to mask universally or to mandate that, that you work within your family to make sure that your children mask. Um, it is a, an important tool of protection and to not use it at this time seems, um, I mean, I'd say minimally unwise, maximally irresponsible and risky for your child's health. Uh, and then as a hospital leader and somebody seeing these numbers rise and worrying seriously about our capacity as a region to take care of everyone, not just those with COVID, I, I am urging uh, families and school districts and school administrators to, to make it easier by, by making a decision to mandate masks so that everybody has to do this because we are concerned about the rate of rise of this disease in our region and in the next two weeks we could be in a very um, scary spot truthfully in terms of being able to take care of everybody that needs our care and if a mask is a way to mitigate that I, I can't recommend it highly enough. So I think just to give absolute numbers like what um, Pat was saying as far as that there are data to show that a mask alone is about 85 percent effective of preventing transmission. 
um, and then appropriate distancing, which we now know is three feet. Um, last year, they were getting a little bit conservative and saying six feet, but we now have data to show three feet spine uh, is 78% effective. So um, combining those two can't be any less than 85%, and my guess would be you're probably in the 90%. Um, you know, the other thing, too, is that children are going to model our behavior as parents. So if we as parents explain to the kids why it's important to wear the masks, the kids are going to do it. Um, you know, the, the kids kind of think it's cool to have some of these, like, with the big teeth on them or whatever <laughs> as far as that. Uh, um, and it's, it's I had a, a friend where they were saying, Mom, this is their three-year-old, said, Mom, I want to go out and play. May I please have my mask? So the kids know, and the kids will do it, and the kids will follow our lead. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's so important for us as parents, as adults, to be mirroring the behavior we want our kids to do. Kate, you know, the one thing I would add, and I have to do this as a, a developmental pedi pediatrician by my training, uh, but all pediatricians and, and people recognize the importance of kids being in school. And this is the way for kids to be in school. Mm -hmm. um, we learned that last year, that masking and distancing and hygiene can actually be incredibly effective in schools. And we didn't see huge outbreaks in school. So if we really mean what we say, that we want kids to be in school, why wouldn't we do what it will take to keep them in school? Because if they're not masking and there's an outbreak, there will be a quarantine, and, and who knows what other interventions have to take place to keep everybody safe. And that just seems, you know, a step in the wrong direction. Yeah, I mean, and to kind of expound on what, expound on what uh, Patty was saying as far as quarantine means that you'd be sent home for 10 days. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We... Um, my kids were in school in person full-time last year. So a couple weeks ago, my daughter, who's 12 and is fully vaccinated, um, said, Mom, are we wearing masks this year? And I said, the setter kids are. And um, she's like, okay, cool. I did it all last year. It's no big deal. And she's like, I don't want to be quarantined. And my all last year, my son ended up um, with a, one quarantine. He had an exposure on the bus didn't develop symptoms, but I, I feel like we did it really well last year. It was successful, as you were just stating, and it, it's um, it, it, it's frustrating to look at going back without the same measures that we know work. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I mean, think I think the important thing is to realize that this is a public health issue. This is not a political issue, and that what we're trying to do is to keep everyone safe. We've already had far too many people be hospitalized. Far too many people die and that it's we're going in the wrong direction again. You know, people asked me in June when the mask mandates went down, what do I think? I said, ask me in August. I said, if we make it to August and we haven't had a big surge, we're okay. Unfortunately, what's happened is what I was afraid was gonna happen. And that while Dr. Manning was talking about our bed capacities, I mean, we're seeing more and more infections and disease, we're still very minor compared to looking at what's happened in many states in the South where uh, they don't even have beds left in their state. They're having to ship people out of state to be able to get the care they need. We don't want that to happen again. How quickly could we get from where we are now to a situation like what they're seeing? Florida, I know, is in crisis right now. How, how quickly could something like that happen if we don't so the, Stop it. the modeling that we have looked at, and we are very fortunate here at Cincinnati Children's to have uh, medical epidemiologists that can really model uh, what we're going through and make some predictions. They're not perfect, but they help us plan. Uh, I have to say as early as the end of this month, 
if we continued at the same rate, that we could be in the same or similar position to us, our southern neighbors. I will say that we're experiencing um, kind of the movement from south to north of, of disease growth. Uh, so some of our colleagues in the middle of the state, in the northern part of the state, are not feeling as much burden as we are yet. Um, so we'll probably feel it first before our, our partner hospitals in Ohio do. But yeah, could be two weeks. So if we are looking at a situation where we don't have the capacity to take care of everybody who needs care, could we be looking at stay-at-home orders again? You know, I, I don't think there's an appetite on many fronts for stay-at-home orders. Uh, as effective as they were, we may learn in retrospect that we deployed them at not the most optimal time. Um, but in theory, that's close to what we could need. I think what's going to happen in, in healthcare is that we're, we're going to have, and I think what we're afraid of in healthcare is that we're the ones that are going to have to do all the mitigation to manage the increasing numbers of patients, whether that's cancel elective surgeries or deploy staff differently, or, you know, it's our, our goal is to serve the children in our region and keep them safe, and we'll do whatever it takes. But we'd like those things that we do to not be so difficult and such a huge lift. Uh, and so I can't see a scenario where any kind of stay-at-home order is issued, but I can see a scenario where we urge people to take the utmost caution so that they stay safe and healthy, so that they don't need us. I, I think one thing, though, Kate, is I'll sound like a broken record, but the best way we can keep that from happening is getting vaccinated. And one of the things that people have misunderstood, and it's, again, very easy to see why they're misunderstanding, is that they're misunderstanding infection versus disease. And infection means that I can find the virus in you, but it doesn't necessarily mean you have symptoms. So disease means you have symptoms. And then even within disease, there's a spectrum of illness. And with COVID, that spectrum of illness is the widest spectrum I can think of from a common cold to death. And so what we're seeing is that even people that are having breakthrough cases, almost all, less than, um, so eight or 10% of the cases are ending up in the hospital where almost all of them are at home. That they're, they're mild, they're better in a day or two, and they're fine. And so people say, well, why am I bothering getting vaccinated if I still can get infected, if I can still get disease? Look at the level of disease you're getting. Are you being hospitalized? Are you dying from this? And the answer is no. Dr. Frank, I want to go back to an 80% effectiveness number that you mentioned related to masking. Actually, 85. 85%. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Yep. 85%. Will you tell me what that 85% effectiveness is, sure. please? Sure. Okay. That's great. And that uh, because sometimes I forget is that uh, I'm using terms that aren't really that um, common. And so that what would you say is that if normally 100 people would get infected by being 85% protective, only 15 people get infected. So it prevented 85 people from getting infected out of 100. So we're saying that it is effective at Keeping preventing people from getting spread. Infected, people getting infected, people getting sick, people spreading the infection. Perfect. Okay. Because I'm hearing people saying, oh, there's no way it's 85% effective at keeping the wearer from getting the disease. That's not what it's intended to do. So... But you're, the main way that we transmit coronavirus or any respiratory virus is what's called droplet spread. And so that droplet means that you've coughed in your sneeze and it'll go about three feet. That's why the appropriate distancing of the three feet. 
the way, and so that if you then have somebody closer to three feet, they cough and sneeze in your direction, you just got the virus on you. Or if it lands on the surface and you touch your with your hand and you put your hand to your face, you've infected yourself. Or if you're shaking hands with somebody you've inf- that sneezed and coughed in their or coughed in their hand, you've infected yourself. So having that mask on. Um, it does do that. It, it prevents the transmission. It, and then it's also, if somebody has symptoms, if they're sneezing or coughing, it's getting caught into the mask so that they're not transmitting it to other people. Um, but we have shown it. It is very effective. You know? And I think the other thing, too, is it's a visual cue, is that you see somebody has a mask on and it reminds you, keep a distance. Talk to me about that third dose. What's going on with that? So... There's two different things, is that there one was a third dose um, where we were talking about augmenting the primary series of people that had immunocompromising conditions, and that was about 2.5% of the population. So people that had, are being actively treated for cancer or had organ transplants or had uh, uncontrolled HIV or on high-dose steroids. Um, but then today the, the CDC came out and made a recommendation for everyone that had uh, their second dose eight months or more ago um, to get a third dose, which probably would be starting in September. That is going to, that, so that really is a booster dose then. And that, so the difference between a third dose, we're just trying to get their immune level up in the first place versus a booster dose. People already had a very good immune response and it's starting to wane a little bit. And so you're giving them another dose to try to boost it past to where they were. Um, the vaccine, though, still is showing 90 to 94% ability to protect against hospitalization or death. So we're going to get marginal incremental improvement by going from 92 to 94%, maybe up to 96%. Where we're going to get our biggest bang for the buck is getting the 50% of people that aren't vaccinated, vaccinated. People have been saying, well, you know, this has come too fast. We don't really know about the vaccine safety. We don't know what's going on. We've now had over 360 million doses of vaccine administered in the United States. This is probably one of the best tested, evaluated vaccines that we've ever had. Um, And we know the safety profile. The other thing people have talked about is long-term side effects. And I had to think about that a little bit. And as far as that, we don't see long-term side effects with vaccines. If you're gonna see a side effect, you're gonna see it within the first few weeks after a vaccine. It's different from a medication where you're taking a medicine every day and so that you could get an accumulation of medicine over months or something and get something that happens years later because you're continually taking that medication. Vaccines are different. You're getting a vaccine, you get another dose in a month, and then you're done. Um, And so you don't have that repeated exposure so that you really don't have these long-term effects. So I want to talk for um, a a minute about vaccine for younger age groups, because you gave us a 50% of people who are unvaccinated currently, Dr. Frank. Does that include children as well, or is that 50% of currently eligible people? So it's of currently eligible people. And and so anyone under 12, it's going to be 100% that uh, are unvaccinated. Uh, well, I guess maybe 99.9 for the few children that have been participating in the clinical trials so we can get vaccines available for all. Um, And with that, I would like to give a shout out to Cincinnati. They've been incredibly supportive of the vaccine trials that we've been doing and that uh, they really should be um, proud of uh, what they've done because it's really been instrumental being able to get the vaccines uh, licensed throughout the country. 
yes, shout out to Cincinnati. Thank you for for showing up for the for the clinical trials. Um, how are they? How are we looking timing wise on that? What's the next one? Is it going to be eight to eleven or nine to eleven? So right now the the Pfizer vaccine is available for twelve and above. The Moderna vaccine was just uh, approved yesterday in Europe for 11 and above, so I would assume it'll probably be fairly soon in the United States, a similar kind of uh, recommendation. Uh, the next step we'll be looking at is 5 to 12-year-olds, uh, so up to the 12th birthday. Um, when that's going to be available really depends on the decision the FDA makes. Is Based on adult data, where they made the decision after two months of the uh, safety data, that could mean as the as soon as the end of this month, maybe even September, that the uh, vaccine would be available for five years of age and above. It, it really depends on how the FDA decides to look at it. I would say from five to 12, it'll be available sometime between the end of August and the beginning part of December. How many children will that cover? Do we have any idea what that number is in the United States? Millions. Millions. I mean, there's 80 million um, people in the United States under 18. Um, in the 12 to 18 group, it's um, 27 million, I think, and that's so. We're probably still we're probably talking another 20 million people, something like that, that it would be um, eligible to get vaccine. Fantastic! Thank you for that update. We appreciate it. We've definitely felt um, well informed here because of the your involvement and the the trials that are happening right here in our organization. So. Again, thank you for leading the way, and we will keep our fingers crossed for sooner than later. Um, you mentioned the FDA and a decision, and one of the things that I'm hearing out in the community fairly often is the difference between the, um, the emergency use authorizations that the FDA has given for the vaccines to this point and a full approval that um, people are interpreting as more important. Uh, would you give us just a quick rundown on the difference between those two things? So emergency use authorization is probably something no one heard of before two years ago. Um, it is uh, something that the FDA has had for a number of years to be able to uh, deal with um, outbreaks or emergencies. So it's just that term, emergency use authorization. Um, and so that it's in a time when there's an emergency and we do not have a licensed treatment or prevention that you're able to, the FDA is able to give authorization for promising um, agents. So the vaccines were uh, authorized to be able to be used and we also have medications that were authorized for use. The um, authorization came after half of the people had at least two months of safety data. So in the Pfizer trial, there's 40,000 people. In Moderna, there's 40,000 people. In AstraZeneca, there's 40,000 people. In Johnson & Johnson, 40,000 people. In Novavax, 40,000 people. So we had lots and lots of people had vaccine before these emergency use authorizations were provided. Um, then we continued still to collect data. And that um, we've now had over 360 million people receive vaccine or 360 million doses of vaccine been given um, the so the amount of doses have been given before licensure it exceeds any vaccine by thousandfold um, typically we have people maybe 50 60,000 people 
have had a vaccine before it's licensed. So to have 180, 200 million people have vaccine before it's licensed, you never have that. The rules are those that the FDA can't approve a vaccine until they have the six month safety data. It's not that we see anything different, but between that two and six month period, but it's still, it's the rules. And so that's why the author the authorization came first and the approval later. Um, actually, I'm not sure when you'll be airing this podcast, but you may actually have approval by the time that you're airing this. I mean, I, I think it's eminent um, for both Moderna and Pfizer. Thank you for that. That's one of those that it keeps coming up mm-hmm. over and over. Um, and the other, the other one that keeps surfacing is related to um, moms-to-be and vaccination during pregnancy and vaccination um, while moms are breastfeeding. And I feel like there's, we've covered it so many times, but Patty, will you cover it for us again? Definitely. Please? It's, you know, first of all, I want to say that uh, I can't imagine an expectant, an expectant mom trying to navigate what seems like a, a hard decision for her own safety or the safety of her baby. But the good news is, is that there's so much evidence and now formal recommendations that pregnant moms can be safely vaccinated and need to be vaccinated because actually their risk from COVID we're seeing is quite significant. Some of the most, um, I mean, all stories of COVID illness and death are, are heartbreaking, but some of the most heartbreaking stories I've read are of pregnant moms who have either had to deliver early or had crash C-sections or are in ICUs after they deliver their babies because they're still so sick from COVID. So there are strong recommendations from the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology and from the CDC that pregnant moms be vaccinated that is safe and highly recommended for them to be vaccinated. And same uh, for lactating moms, that they are safe and fine to be vaccinated. There's some uh, probably protection that would be uh, potentially shared with their babies that is only beneficial. I mean, I, I think just expanding on what Patty was saying is that vaccinating the vaccines the mRNA is gone in two days. It does not hang around. The adenoviral vector, which we use for Johnson & Johnson, is gone in a day or two. It does not hang around. So there is nothing there that's going to be chronically like uh, infecting the baby or causing the baby any problems. What can happen, as Patty was mentioning, is that mom making an immune response, that she's actually giving a gift to her baby. She's giving the antibodies to her baby to try to help to protect the baby. We also have small studies now to show that um, moms can have antibodies against COVID in their breast milk, um, and so that you can help try to protect the babies that way too. I think we want to try to wrap up now. Do either of you have any final thoughts on where we are and for this update and for the families that we reach? I would, I would quickly add that I was asked earlier this week, what's different this year than last year this time? And I said, everything. Everything's different. We have a more transmissible virus. It's caught more easily. We're going back to school without mask mandates, uh, and we have full hospitals with other respiratory diseases. So everything is different, and we have tools that we can use. That's different too, and that's good. So we need to use those tools because we are in a, in a more concerning place than we were last year. That's what I would say. I'd say that um, I'll end on the, the high note, is that we have tools that we didn't have last year. We have effective vaccines, very effective vaccines, please go get them. Thank you both so very much for your time and for joining us today with this important update. We very much appreciate it. You've been listening to the Young and Healthy Podcast.
We'll see you next week. This episode was recorded on August 18th, 2021. The content of the Young and Healthy podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Our theme music was created by Stephen Grieco. This episode was produced by Symphony Pitts. Thanks for listening and tune in next week to the Cincinnati Children's Young and Healthy podcast. Follow Cincinnati Children's on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.